Welcome back to Discover Ag, where every week we discover something new in the world of agriculture. I'm your host, Natalie Kavoric. And I'm Tara Vanerdusen. And today, as you guys noticed from our title, we have a very exciting bonus episode for you. It's an interview with a guest who both Tara and I are very excited to have on the podcast. Um, before we get into speaking with Dr. Holder and having him introduce himself, I do want to lay a little background for you guys. So I was first, um, I guess, introduced to Dr. Holder back in May at the Alltech One conference. So he did a handful of presentations for them, but I caught a main one he did on the main stage and then one of his breakout sessions. And they were kind of centered around environmental impact and you know how that could maybe provide a new value proposition for agriculture and then also beef and global food security. And I'm telling you guys, when I was tuning into this conference, I did it um, virtually. I could not consume um, his information fast enough. It was so value packed. I actually have a story that um, I found. I'm going to share it to our uh, Discover Ag stories for you guys to see. But I talked about how I wanted so badly to get Dr. Holder on the podcast to bring this information to you guys. So I'm really excited. We're going to kind of dive into some of that information he's doing with Alltech. And then we're also going to have conversation around, um, if you guys missed it, the eighth billionth person was just born in the world um, back on November 15th. And so we really want to have a pretty deep conversation about like what that means for agriculture and um, ruminants and just feeding the growing population. So with that, Dr. Holder, if you kind of want to introduce yourself to our community, lay down those credentials so they can get to know the man behind all this value that's about to come. Yeah, thanks a lot. appreciate being here, Natalie. Uh, uh, happy to be on this podcast. I'm Vaughn Holder. As you said, uh, I'm Ruminant Research Director here at Alltech and uh, my responsibility is basically for overseeing the ruminant research program. But broader than that, uh, I do a lot of public speaking, as you've seen, on on these topics, particularly of food security and of environmental impact of livestock species. And trying to just dig a little bit deeper than just emissions, right? I mean, everyone always loves to talk about emissions all the time, but don't like to talk about any of the actual contributions that agriculture are making. And I think uh, we've got to really try and have a much more balanced discussion on uh, the entirety of the footprint of agriculture, both positive and negative, before we, we make any conclusions. So uh, I guess that's that's the role I play here and uh, something that I'm very passionate about. So happy to talk about it. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think one of the big things Natalie and I always hit home about is that when you talk about cattle and even just the food supply system on a whole, it's not as simple as just chalking it up to admissions. Like, emission, like this is the emissions. It's so much more complicated than that. And I think one of the things you really talk a lot about is kind of that land use piece that like the reason it's more complicated is because it's not as simple as like, let's take away cattle. It's like, but we can't do anything else on like these marginal lands. That's what these lands are great for is grazing cattle. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. And uh, not just the lands themselves, but the resources contained on those lands, right? Uh, the, the, the pastured lands or the uh, the rangelands of the world are that way because we can't really use them for cultivation of normal pastures at scale. And so if we want to actually utilize that land to to increase our food supply, which we obviously need to do, given uh, the amount of people on the planet, uh, um, we can't just take that off the we can't just take that off the page. Uh, we are already as a planet food insecure. Everyone likes to talk about. 2050 and 9 billion and all of that good stuff. But there's plenty of research out there that would say that roughly half the world geographically is already food insecure. So from my view, any conversation that involves the reduction of use 
or the reduction of food production in general is pretty irresponsible. And we've got to talk about that in context with, with all the other, other conversations that are happening around uh, livestock in particular. Yeah, I remember in one of your uh, pieces for that conference, you had said that anyone who wants to take away the animal protein um, needs to account for the fact that we would be taking away about 14% of the Earth's um, use for that we could only use for animals. Um, and I thought that that statistic was pretty alarming. Um, can you talk a little bit more, like, you know, diving into this about how ruminants produce more protein than they consume and that role with the land piece in feeding that growing population? Yeah, so there's a couple of pieces to this, but it, it all centers around the ability of ruminants to upcycle nutrients, right? Take, and that's a fancy way of saying, take something we can't use and turn it into something that we can use. Uh, and that's pretty important. So you've got, it's 14% of the land area, but it's really not just talking about pastures. They're talking about all the byproducts, all the food waste and everything that these ruminants consume that we can't ourselves consume. And actually allowing us to access that within our food supply. So for one, we're turning things that we can't eat into things that we can eat. That's just like making food. Uh, and that's what we do. But also, people love to have the conversation saying, well, if we just stopped feeding all of our food to animals, we would have more food to deal with. And in fact, ruminants are the only species that actually increase uh, the amount of food uh, or, or or nutrients that are available to us when you feed, uh, you know, grains and legumes and that type of stuff to them because they're able to actually upcycle it. The, the microbes within the rumen of the animal break down things that we can't use, use things like non-protein nitrogen and poorly balanced protein and turn them into something that is extremely digestible, extremely nutrient dense um, and, and contains all the nutrients that we need if we are proposing plant-based diets, all the things that will be... Uh, that will be deficient or obviously contained in meat. So they have this unique ability to allow us to access nutrients that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise, and but also the ability to improve the quality of the food that we currently have access to. I think that for me is like the biggest thing here is it's not just about calories. Like I just think a lot of people want to like deduct it to calories. And especially in America, we don't need more calories. We need more nutrient dense foods and we need more nutrient dense foods across the planet. Like you said, I mean, how many people are food insecure? How many children are food insecure? It's not just about giving them calories. And that's what cattle do so great is, you know, turning calories into nutrient dense foods. Uh, and so I, I also will like, spin that about the um the lands a lot of things that i hear online are like well it, instead of growing corn for cattle let's grow something else and i think one of the missing pieces is it we can't just like wake up tomorrow and start growing like almonds in the middle of the midwest like it's that's what that land is able to support yeah no that's right and it's it's not just you know you say calories certainly we don't need calories here but uh you know, we, we look at protein. Protein is obviously a big one from a scale and volume standpoint. We need a lot of protein in the world. Uh, Paul Moen's paper that looked at the, essentially took the protein supply of the world and corrected it for the poor digestibility and poor amino acid composition of vegetable-based proteins and found that roughly, this is the research I quoted, 103 of the 190 odd countries in the world then become protein insecure. It's just one nutrient though, right? The thing is that this is really, really complex. We can't just talk about protein. We can't just talk about energy. We've got to talk about a whole host of different nutrients that 
that particularly livestock production bring into our food supply uh, when we talk about alternatives. Though that, that to me is the biggest driver of this. Let, I don't think we should shy away from conversation that says, how can we do this better? But we have to have very well-rounded and robust discussions on what the consequences are of, for example, something as extreme as eliminating ruminant agriculture uh, will do, because that has knock-on consequences, not just to food supply, but I think that there's relatively good evidence that if we eliminated ruminant production, that the greenhouse gas footprint of the world would go up rather than down. And I think that, that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that would be the case. Yeah, you and you were actually, so Tara and I were at the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, um, and you had really great discussion around this conversation of protein and micronutrients and macronutrients and really uh, looking at it, like you said, on almost the nuance of it, like a layer deep that we're missing as a society about the the yes. value that protein beings and, and beyond just protein. Um, and that was with Dr. Ty Beal. And you guys had such a great conversation around that. Going back to something you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago, you talked about byproducts for livestock. Mm-hmm. And you have, you brought it up at Alltech One Conference, and you also brought it up at the Global Roundtable Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Um, and I want to bring this up because I think it's so important. The 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 value that livestock um, bring by consuming byproducts and um, the conversation, because I know there's a study out there. I don't know if you um, conducted it yourself or, or not, but you have access to this study that talks about how greenhouse grass emissions would increase in certain areas of cattle weren't consuming those byproducts. Can we dive into that a little bit, please? Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I was getting at with that pre- previous statement that I made, that I believe that greenhouse gas production will go up if we eliminate ruminants. And that's that this, uh, we, we often love to just talk about emissions because that comes from sort of the fossil fuel industry, right? This is where the greenhouse gas conversation was formed. It's fossil fuels. We take them out of the ground, we burn them, they go in the air. That's the end of the story, right? When we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about ecosystems. We take advantage of ecosystems to produce food. That's essentially what we do. Um, now, according to the FAO, and Motet's work says that 86% of the, the feed that we actually feed livestock in the world is considered inedible by humans. You think about that for a second. Not only does it not compete for our own food supply, but we have all of this uh, raw material available in the world, whether that be byproducts, whether that be food waste, whether that be crop residues or anything else. Those products are entering our food supply through ruminants for the most part. So we we do, I think, acknowledge the fact that that is increasing our food supply. But what we don't acknowledge is what would happen if we didn't have anything to feed that stuff to? This is carbon that's locked up in plant cells much of it's cellulose, right? So only ruminants can digest it. What happens to that carbon when it breaks down in the environment if we don't have anything to capture that carbon? A lot of it turns into methane. And in fact, there's studies, it's not my work, it's actually a, a former mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Juan Tricarico, that did this work. And basically he looked at uh, byproduct usage in dairy cows and the fact that when you feed byproducts through a dairy cow system, yes, you produce a certain amount of greenhouse gases, from those byproducts as a result of rumen fermentation. However, if you took that byproduct and you tried to find another use for it, right, what are we going to do with it otherwise? 
you put it into a compost heap. Let's try and capture a few of those nutrients, put it into a compost heap and put it back onto the crops. The amount of greenhouse gases put off during that process is five times, 5x, not five more, 5x, what it would be if you put it through a cow. If you put it into a landfill, which is the most likely scenario, as we know in the world, we're not very good at dealing with waste. It all ends up in landfills. You put that material in a landfill and the greenhouse gas footprint of that material goes up by 50 times or 49 times, let's be accurate, according to that model. So again, we've got to not be just thinking about emissions. We need to think about this full ecosystem and the fact that these animals are preventing a ton of greenhouse gases from, from coming out. That's just byproducts. We're not even talking about the world's pasture lands. There's plenty of information that says when you don't have ruminants grazing up that carbon on those pasture lands, that the greenhouse gas footprint actually increases without ruminants on those pasture lands. So we've got to have a much more nuanced conversation in the area, not only of food security, but also you know, environmental consequences of, of livestock production. Yeah, my dairy side, I'm like loving this to study about dairy cows because it, I do think the byproduct conversation is like the unsung hero of like our cows. Nobody is talking about that enough in the conversations about sustainability. Like the biggest part of our sustainability in our cattle, in my opinion, is their genetics and then what we're feeding them, the byproducts. When we take people on tours of our dairy, that is one of the things that always surprises them is we go through the feed, you know, the commodity area and how many of those bunks are byproducts. I mean, just tons and tons that get brought in of byproducts that our cattle are, are, you know, eating. And the thing too, is it's not just about emissions. They are obviously lowering the emissions of those byproducts by consuming them, but then they're outputting a super nutrient dense product. Like what more do you want than that? That like you're providing a high quality food and lowering emissions. Like that's what we're all hoping for. Well, think about the collateral on that as well. Like if you eliminate that, you are going to have to increase the amount of grains and plant-based foods that we have to produce in order to feed the population dramatically, right? Because if we take livestock production and the nutrients that they provide off of the map, it's going to dramatically increase the amount of crop production that we're going to have to do. We're going to have even more crop residues and nothing to do with them. So think about like that kind of dynamic and what that's going to do to the total greenhouse gas footprint of food production as a whole. These are conversations that even in my view at the UN are not being had in terms of people recommend making recommendations for the food systems of the future and not considering all of these collateral effects of the main point that they're trying to do. And they're saying, take the cow away and the methane goes away. And that's yeah. the end of the conversation. And that is, is very, very nearsighted. And we need to be talking a lot more about one, everything else. One more thing on that, too, that I don't think people talk about is the financial side. So if a company like, uh, you know, if you're making ethanol, we buy the byproducts from them. If whatever it is, cottonseed, we buy cottonseed from cotton gins. If you took that away, you also take out that economic piece. Like they would be throwing away a product that's worth money. Like that doesn't make any sense in any way that you can look at it. Like whether that's from an environmental side and nutrition side or the financial side, like the financial side is a piece, like our farmers don't need to like be throwing away something that they can get paid for. Yeah. And it's not just the farmer's income, right? It's everybody else's income and the, the economy in general. I think that go look at that Tricarico paper because I last when I spoke to one Tricarico, the, the lead author on that, he was busy with a, economic evaluation of 
of that work. So in, in other words, they quantified the greenhouse gas and sort of uh, nutrient contributions of that study, but they were going to do a second paper looking at what the actual economic uh, benefits were to society by having that activity going on, which again, we can't just ignore when we are proposing food systems of the future. So shifting just a little bit, not much, <laughs> I feel like it all, you know, is entangled <laughs> together, but I have you quoted as saying agriculture captures carbon for a living. No one is positioned to do something like agriculture is. Can we maybe dive into a little bit about, you know, this, this idea and how, you know, you along with all tech really believe that agriculture has the, you know, the really the greatest potential to positively shape, you know, our, our planet moving forward. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, I've got some data from NASA that I presented. You guys probably saw that in the, in the, the plenary session there at Alltech One conference, basically looking at what the contribution is of the different greenhouse gases to the warming that is currently in the environment. And you could see from that data that although methane is going up, relatively dramatically over time, the actual contribution of methane to total warming is very, very small compared to CO2, right? CO2 is the big monster in the room. CO2 is what's causing all of the havoc. Now, there is no known scale way of pulling CO2 out of the environment that makes sense economically, except for growing plants, right? I mean, that's not sequestration. We shouldn't get confused because sequestration means we've got to put that carbon back down into the ground. So that's the second part of the process. We're actually capturing that and, and making it into something solid, which is the first step in that process. Agriculture and forestry, which I include in that sort of blanket, are the only industries that do that at their core, right? That's what we do. We, make, we take carbon out of the air and we turn it into food. That's what our industry does. Uh, and so... It's really important that we find ways to utilize the fact that we do that to actually take on the challenge of the CO2 in the air. The second step in that process is understanding how to improve the ability to get that carbon now into the ground, right? And just so happens that the only known way to do that at scale is by putting grazing ruminants on pastures and utilizing the effect of the microbial activity in the ruminant as well as the activity on the pastures to, to push that carbon back down into the soil and capture it. So for me, I think the scale that agriculture already exists at uniquely positions us as the only people who can actually do anything about this. Even if we discover a technology tomorrow that is really good at pulling carbon out of the air and pumping it into the ground, it's going to require a probably multi-decades long scale up of that technology before it has any kind of impact on the actual concentration of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere. I think that's so interesting about that. We're the only industry like doing that because it's, you know, we're recording this right after Thanksgiving. And if you have been shopping on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, any of those things, I noticed on Amazon lately, it says like a climate pledge. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that there's like a little green like thing that's like, we are pledged to be climate neutral. We are climate neutral on every single thing you buy. If they are claiming that. And I just, every time I see it, I just have to wonder like, how are they doing that? Are they buying carbon credits? Are they actually like going out and planting trees? Like what? Because like you said, I mean, we're the ones, like the only way to get carbon out is to plant plants. So if companies are claiming carbon neutral, what does that even look like? You know? And I just, I think that we as ag need to do a better job, I think, of highlighting that strength of ours, that that's what we're doing. That's what our industry does is take carbon out of the atmosphere and then we provide food. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a really important thing is that where are these companies getting this? Because every company has this pledge, right? Whether it's right now or whether it's in the future. In fact, um, if you've flown on Delta recently, you'll see Delta carbon neutral flights. It's yep. like, uh, how do you burn fossil fuels flying across the ocean and have a carbon neutral flight? And they're buying them from someone. And I think quite right. It's either forestry or agriculture uh, that that's coming from. But it is still the wild, wild west out there because even the scientists directly involved in this, I don't include myself in that. I'm talking about the people on the ground like uh, UC Davis and Ag Next at Colorado State. Those folks actually doing this on the ground are still trying to come to terms with the understanding of that total system, right? We got a pretty good handle on emissions, but again, that's a very small fraction of the entire story. Uh, and so we don't actually understand what our total footprint is. So saying that we are carbon neutral or that we sequester X amount of carbon and, and therefore can generate carbon credits is just the science is not there for us yet. Uh, and so these blanket statements that get made uh, should concern most people because even the experts are not 100% sure on how all this works yet. Well, I think that's one of the things I actually find frustrating is that I don't think blanket statements like that do cause alarm in people. I think that they just take that as almost like a wrapped present where they're like, oh, great, we're we have a problem and here's our solution and I can like rest easy now. So I don't know. Yeah. And then at the same time, say, well, I'm not going to eat meat anymore because <laughs> that's bad for the environment. But you just took a carbon free uh Delta flight funded by the dairy industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that this goes back to, like you said, like these are nuanced conversations we need to be having. And unfortunately, what makes the headlines is don't eat meat, save the planet. You know, four words, right? Something four or five words. <laughs> and then we have to go back in ag and be like, okay, here's a, you know, 50 page peer reviewed study that says all these other things. And all people can remember is that single soundbite. And that that's what gets, you know, a blanketed patent painted statement. And, you know, people like at the UN, I mean, lots of organizations kind of run with it because it it generates a lot of buzz and a lot of media and just a lot of conversation, whether it's right or wrong or indifferent. Yeah, nuance doesn't make headlines, does it? No, it does not, unfortunately. It's hard to fit in a 25-word headline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but we, I mean, I think, you know, you guys are doing a great job with being able to create awareness because that is our primary limitation, right, is that we need to be telling our story. And, and as an industry in general, and I certainly don't include you two in this, we are pretty bad at telling our story. We have to become a lot better at doing that, and things like this are, are doing... Uh, great things to, to improve that. Thank you. So shifting to talk about this, uh, you know, 8 billion strong we have going on here in society now. Um, you guys actually wrote a little blog post on it on, um, you guys can find it. We'll link it in the show notes, but all tech, um, has it on their website, nourishing the world, 8 billion people and counting. Um, you guys outlined in there, let me get to it here. Um, a look at the trends. And it's noted that the 8 Billion Strong campaign identified eight, tra eight trends for a world of 8 billion people. One that stood out to me that um, maybe you'll have, I'm interested to hear your you know, thoughts behind it, but is this idea that we're now an aging population. So I kind of just listened to this podcast the other day that talked about um, you know, this idea that I don't think people are 
I don't think there's enough narrative around it that, you know, we are aging and what does that mean for agriculture and changing diets? Um, and so I didn't know if you had anything to add to that about, you know, agriculture's role. Um, you know, I guess a, a single question with the aging population, but then we can move into a broader question of, you know, with the growing population. Yeah, so I, I guess I immediately migrate towards the other side of the, the conversation because I think it's probably uh, at scale more important. And, and I don't mean to dodge the question, Natalie, but I just think that the fact that we have, obviously, in, in the developed world where we have the aging population, we have the best food systems, right? We've got the most efficient food systems in the world. We probably have nutrient excess supply in the world, but we don't have the growing population to match it. And the imbalance is that where all the population growth is occurring, we have poor food systems, highly inefficient food systems, uh, and not enough food to go around. And so our big, big challenge is the fact that it's just going to continue to get worse, right? The population is going to continue to grow and the food production is necessarily going to grow to match it, but it's going to be the most inefficient food production systems of the world that is growing to match that. So I think our challenge as an industry in general, a global industry, is to upgrade this, the food systems of the world to, to match the actual food systems that exist in the, in the developing world. And, and Sarah Place did a really, really interesting uh, presentation, probably a, a year back already now, where she, she showed what would happen if the, in the existing world, if the developing world food systems efficiency matched the developed world food systems efficiency, that the greenhouse gas footprint of food production would decrease by 45%. That's crazy. And so when we are looking for solutions to this in terms of both food security and greenhouse gas production, there's the answer, right? Is importing the skills and the technologies that we develop in these marketplaces into, into the developing world essentially allowing them to leapfrog the technology gains that we had to make over the past two, three decades. I forget where I read it or saw it, but it was like, if we spent as much time trying to help the developing nations improve their food systems as we did trying to like, you know, the anti-meat narrative of like removing animal agriculture, the impacts it would have on um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, improving nutrition, improving the welfare of the farmers in developing nations. Like it would just be such a compounding positive effect because there would be so many good things to come out of it instead of just saying like, we just need to do away with all of animal yeah. ag. Like we could just make such a bigger impact on the global scale. Yeah. But there's environmental effects. There's food security effects, there's economic, dramatic economic effects. And even if you look at the, the, the stunting that occurs in particularly sub-Saharan Africa from nutrient deficiencies, you talk about what the effect is of correcting uh, mental retardation and stunting as a result of nutrient deficiency and what that will do to a population by just, uh, by just feeding them properly. So it's dramatic. And, and what you say is exactly right, is if we spend half as much time taking care of that as we did some other uh, frivolous things, we might be in a pretty good place. I think that goes to, though, um, like that the idea of local uh, sustainability versus global sustainability, something Natalie and I talk a lot about, is we in developed nations get very hyper-focused on our little like bubble, and we yeah. forget to look at everybody else. And 
it, it's just a, extremely elite of us to think that way um, instead of just trying to solve our local emissions. And we end up putting off emissions then onto other countries. Uh, we need to be looking at it on a global scale. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Changing your diet to an environmental diet is a privilege of the <laughs> of the developed nation, right? Uh, anyone who increases their income in a developing nation does so and eats more meat. And in developed nations, we, we go the opposite way. So uh, you lost what, sight of what's actually important in the world. And I do want to mention, like, you come to this conversation being that you did some of your research in um, South Africa and have lived there, correct, uh, with Alltech as well. So, I mean, yes. you've definitely, like, you have lived this on in a global, the global food system. You have actually lived it, researched it um, beyond, you know, obviously just the U.S., yeah, that certainly helps to give you perspective uh, in order to understand these things and actually see poverty at the level that it actually exists in some places. And and South Africa is nowhere near what other places in like sub-Saharan sub and Central Africa would be. So that certainly gives you the perspective to understand, at least uh, envision what knock-on effects, the changes that we are making. And we're all making them centrally in the rich countries, right? These are the changes we're proposing for the world, uh, not really taking feedback from the people who are actually going to feel the effects of it uh, on the other side of things. I mean, I mean, just a global commodity market as an example is a very important example of that. I'm sure you guys have discussed uh, on the podcast before us talking about reducing production of certain commodities in developed markets. Let's take beef, for example. You take beef in the US, they've got 6% of the world's cattle and produce 18% of the world's beef. Now, if we decide that for environmental reasons, we want to take that cattle production over the market, the demand for the beef is not going to go away. It's just going to get made somewhere else where it's made less efficiently and with a bigger footprint, right? So that concept of leakage, I think, as Frank Mitlerner calls it, leakage is, is another real consideration when we make local decisions that actually are going to have global effects that are the opposite of what we were trying to do in the first place. Yeah, that was another key takeaway that I really loved from the Global Roundtable Sustainable Beef Conference was this idea that like you have to maintain production in these efficient countries, like offsetting it and shifting it is uh, almost irresponsible of us. So when people talk about trying to, you know, change or decrease U.S. production, I, I just wish more people understood like the consequences of how that could, you know, the ripple effect of what that would mean, you know, in the U.S., but also, like you said, globally as, a, you know, one of the leading countries. Yeah. Yeah. And also you, you stop progress in, in the most developed markets and you essentially stop the, the science from moving forward as well. Right. Because if we decide for ourselves that we're going to we're going to stop trying to improve dairy and beef production in the U.S., then essentially I, I don't want to just put the U.S. there. There's other markets in the world, obviously, that that are doing a lot in that space. But you take that production, uh, Ireland is probably a really good example of this, proposing reducing the dairy herd in Ireland, where some of the best dairy cows and dairy production systems in the world exist. And when you take those, I guess, shining lights out, the development that goes on in those places also gets taken away. So the future potential for improving livestock production on a global basis is also limited by by taking those actions as well. So again, unintended consequences are, I think, one of the biggest things that we have to try and understand when we're talking about uh, these future food systems. 
Yeah, I think uh, my last comment on that kind of reminds me of like Europe banning, you know, GMOs and then importing them from Brazil. You're going <laughs> to like, it's just, you're, fi- I, you're just solving your kind of like whatever your, that goal, it goes back to, you know, the, these beautiful goals we've all set that we have to meet. And then we're just offsetting those emissions to a country that hasn't set or pledged these goals. And, and yeah. that's kind of what's happening. We're just shifting emissions around the world instead of actually solving them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like that's kind of all I had. Natalie, any final questions? Um, no, I guess I'd like to get Dr. Holder's um, thoughts, just like looking forward and moving forward. Um, you know, you're, I also have you quoted saying that, you know, ag, we have two of the most important jobs. You know, one is preserving the planet and two is, you know, nourishing the people. And I guess if we kind of just want to look forward um, with the growing population, you know, what do you think, you know, holds for agriculture, you know, ruminants role in that moving forward of how we feed this growing population, but yet preserve the planet. Yeah. They, I mean, they say population growth is slowing down. Right. But I, uh, there doesn't seem to be any cho- any sign of that, uh, at the moment, I think in develop in developed world, there is some of that, but I mean, we were at 2 billion people in 1927. Um, the last billion only took 11 years to add. Right. So <laughs> we don't know what the population growth rate is going to look like in the future, even though most predict it's going to slow, we're still going to be increasing at a dramatic rate. Uh, Jack Bobo actually made a quote that uh, I'm going to see if I can get the numbers right now. I've been saying a lot of numbers today. Um, in the next 30 years, we will have to produce enough food in order to feed the population in the next 30 years, we have to produce enough food as we have in the entire existence of humankind before that. So the 10,000 years of human evolution before that, since agriculture was invented, we have to produce that much food in the next 30 years in order to feed the, the, the current population. So the any kind of conversation that talks about reducing and I'm going to use nutrient security and not food security because I, it's really important to be specific there. Any conversation that talks about reducing nutrient security is irresponsible in my view. We have to figure out how to feed the world while simultaneously not just reducing our impact, but actually trying to find ways to reverse the impact uh, that not just agriculture, but obviously fossil fuel production and our general lives have on the planet because we are the only people that have the ability to do that being at the axis of carbon capture. And even though it's not our fault and we all throw up our hands and say, it's not our fault. That's really besides the point, isn't it? We got to do something about it because we're only ones in a position to do so. So I, I'm not pessimistic though. I'm very optimistic. There's a lot of people working in this area. And the nice thing about all of this going on is that money is flowing into agriculture research right now. And that is a really good thing that we should uh, really notice at the moment, because although there are certain forces that we see acting against trying to trying to go against animal agriculture, I don't think that by any means it's the general feeling of the public. It's a, it's a relatively small group of very loud people that have that narrative. But in general, I think the governments of the world are throwing a lot of money at this or trying to understand it as just the job of the the scientists of the world to to help to guide that process and and understand what the 
policy changes that are made actually are going to do to to the food systems of the future. Beef is the answer, right, Dr. Holder? Beef <laughs> is usually the answer. Uh, and dairy is not dairy. Is dairy. You know, you need cheese on that burger. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Oh, no, uh, ruminants, I mean ruminants specifically. To answer, I realized there was a second part of your question. Ruminants are absolutely critical to the food security picture because of their ability to improve what we have, to, to upcycle the food that we do have, and to convert food that we can't eat into food that we can eat. You know, monogastrics, there's nothing wrong with monogastric production. We take advantage of the fact that we can balance their diet right? Because we don't eat balanced diets. We're not checking which amino acids line up with which when we eat a diet. But we do that for pigs and poultry. And by doing so, we actually do also improve the amount of food available. Because if I eat a piece of chicken, I'm going to get a lot more protein than if I eat a bowl of soybeans, right? Even if the actual total protein content is the same. So even with monogastrics, we are taking advantage of the fact that we can use a balanced diet to improve the the food availability to people at the end of the day. That's important too. I'm glad we didn't leave out the poultry and hog industry. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, pictures of chickens behind me, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's not just about cattle. We gotta we gotta thank all our animal proteins. Uh, <laughs> Fish is gonna come in and say, "What about us?" Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll save them for another. When episode. you talk about that slice of the earth, there's a uh, there's a giant piece of ocean right there that. Uh, we need to figure out how to use without destroying it, right? Because that's an important piece as well. Uh, aquaculture in the future, land-based aquaculture as well as sea-based aquaculture is going to be a huge piece of that picture. It has to be. Yeah, another so, conversation yeah. for probably another day. And probably yeah. a different researcher, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll acknowledge its contribution. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on um, the podcast today. Yeah. We really appreciate it. I know our community is going to love this episode and the value and the information you brought. Um, so thank you to you and Alltech One for um, coming on today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.